0: My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a market market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. that are just trying to make us some money. My job, not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Everybody is tearing their hair out over the tariffs, the trade, to turkey, fretting that companies with big business overseas will soon see their earnings collapse. But after a good day, where the Dow advanced 112 points, s climbed 0.64%, NASDAQ came 0.65%, I don't know if I worry about the right thing. I got something else that's starting to get me a little nervous, and I'm not that easily disturbed. I'm more concerned about spending patterns here at home. They may not seem to impact the averages of a day like today, but boy, oh boy, are they becoming obvious if you know where to look. Despite an incredibly strong job market, we're seeing a decisive shift in how the consumer spends her money. Houses are out. Sell, 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 sell. Clothes and accessories are in. Bye, bye, bye! Today, we got the perfect contrast. This one day, it was really incredible how crystal clear it was. We got it. Home Depot versus Tapestry. <laughs> You may not recognize Tapestry. It's just the old coach, except it's now a Tapestry of Brands. that also includes Kate Spade and Stuart Weitzman. We are speaking tonight to the CEO, Victor Luis, later. And I got to tell you something. I can't wait because he's created something incredible here. This morning, Tapestry reported a pretty good quarter with absolutely fabulous guidance. And that's why its stock was the king of the market. It was the biggest gain in the S&P. It was up 12%. Home Depot, on the other hand, reported a great quarter. A huge top and bottom line beat. But their cautious guidance left some people puzzled and others downright concerned. The despot is about as good as it gets in retail. If they're being cautious, what does that mean for everyone else? After rallying almost four points in before market trading, in other words, before the opening bell, the stock only had a stunning reversal during the conference call and finished actually down the dollar in an otherwise incredibly strong day for retail. What's the real takeaway here? I mean, those who watch it today, let me give you a little sense of what I think. I think people are spending more on clothes than they are at homes. And Home Depot, bizarrely, even though it's a gigantic retailer, is now considered more of a play on traditional housing, not traditional retail. And that's a problematic development because while housing represents just 10% of our economy, that 10% punches well above its weight class in terms of all the different things that go into a house. And look, it's not just these two companies. On the one hand, you have handbags and accessories doing extremely well. Tapestry just confirmed it. We already got an even bigger beat last week from Michael Kors, a similar accessories juggernaut. Macy's today, 52-week high. You see that? Ralph Lauren, PVH, VF Corp, they've all been reporting incredibly good numbers. It's a trend. Put it all together, and it's clear the consumer is truly spending a lot of money on apparel. And that's why Burlington Stores, TGX, you see that one? Kohl's are among the hottest stocks in this market. Kohl's is almost too hot. Hey, by the way, it's why Urban Outfitter stock could actually go up $1. 34 despite a downgrade. And all of this is without even mentioning the king, Amazon. But the strength isn't universal because of housing's newfound weakness. When you later on Home Depot's cautious guidance and you throw in last week's hideous numbers from a little outfit that I follow called Redfin, you start wondering whether maybe the housing industry has hit a wall. Despite plentiful job growth, Okay, which and it is plentiful. And some, by the way, some amazing small business optimism figures we got today: 107.9. That is just a tenth of a percent below the record 1983 reading. Well, you got to do a little bit of uh, about a little consternation. Let's put it that way: Have houses gotten too expensive? Have wages not improved enough? Are mortgage rates too high? Now, many times on Home Depot's conference call, the analysts seemed very skeptical of the true nature of the blowout quarter just reported and the company's subsequent direction for the future. They congratulated management repeatedly and effusively for making up for what was a weak spring. But then they peppered the team with endless questions about housing affordability. Now, Cal Tome, one of my absolute favorite CFOs, talked about housing affordably in a way that in the future, too, for the company. was incredibly bullish. All right. It reassured me. I liked it. But judging by the reaction to the stock, a big uptick and then a complete reversal, others felt differently. Here's what she said. Quote, right now, the affordability index for the country is 144. And if you look at the historical average, it's 127. So in the past, we said, well, if it gets to 127. That could be a watch out for us, end quote. But then Tomei explains that you should not be too concerned with that figure as you might normally be. Why? Because, as she points out, we have a housing shortage in this country. We've got a uh, 4.1 month supply. Normally, it would be more like six months. And, of course, house prices have appreciated. Homeowners have seen their equity value increase by over 120% just since 2011. That's $73,000 per house. She argues that, and I quote, as homeowners view their home as an investment and not an expense, they spend more. Hmm. Okay, I am a huge fan of Carol Tomei. I had her on the show. I take what she says incredibly seriously. But just for a moment, let's flip her logic on its head, okay? If home values have increased by that much, then holy cow, no wonder the economy is not getting much of a boost from housing. Who wants to pay up that much for a house now? A new house? Hey, maybe they cost too much. Now, I want, you to, I want, I want to throw in something we heard from this Redfin, this uh, uh, real estate broker, last Thursday. And It's a tech play on real estate. It, let's call it a real estate services company. It's a little hard to understand, but it had one downbeat conference call. How downbeat? CEO Glenn Kelman told us, quote, in the past three out of four weeks, we saw a significant slowdown. We still have growth year over year, but it's much lower growth than we are accustomed to. Alf, that's not what you want to hear if you own a stock involved in real estate. Then Kelman goes on, quote, You hear real estate agents saying, I put a home when that, uh, that normally would have sold in a week, and it's still on the market a month later. I expected to get eight competing offers. I got one, and it was below the asking price, end quote. Wow! As if that wasn't clear enough, he adds, more and more, there are homes that we thought would sell that don't, end quote. He called out the once red-hot Seattle and San Francisco markets as being too expensive. That dovetails pretty perfectly with the action in the home builders. Lennar stock down 19% for the year. Toll's brother, Toll, down 28%. doctor Horton, 14%. Pulte, down 60%. KB Home, huge California exposure, down 26%. And this is in a good tape. What's the clincher? On the Redfin call, Kelman told us, this, never want to hear this. The younger generation of would-be homeowners is bewildered. Many are living in their parents' basement. Until the market becomes more balanced, they will take longer and be harder for these folks to find a home, end quote. Okay, let's put it all together. In this, what I regard as a disturbing narrative, the millennials may be inheriting the earth, but they're not necessarily inheriting a lot of wealth right now. More and more, they feel priced out of housing, but the economy is booming, and they're still spending. It's just that they're buying apparel, electronic devices, think Apple, they love cool experiences. There's nothing cool about the experience of owning a home. Now let's go back to that big, the biggest gainers list from today. What else can we learn? Uh, what's the second after tapestry? Advanced Auto Parts, AAP, Advanced Auto. It's a retailer that sells car parts with well, a stock that rally 7.79% today. Last week, we ran a piece explaining why CarMax is trouncing AutoNation. The former is all about used cars. The latter is more about expo- much more exposed to new cars. Guess what? Used cars need more replacement parts like you get from Advanced Auto Parts. We know the automakers have been horrendous performers in the stock market. So we have to conclude a couple of things here. The millennials are using Uber and Lyft rather than buying new cars, and they're sharing scooters, too. Maybe new cars like new homes have gotten too expensive for the younger generation. And current owners are more likely to fix their old vehicles instead of buying new ones. Look, I'm not calling for a crisis here. That is not the point of this. I'm not a doomsayer. I got so many other people doing that. and I'm, not, I'm enjoying them. I am just saying money's still being spent. But it's being spent in a different way that we got to get aware of because there are many different winners in the stock market and now some big losers. It's still jarring to think that the automakers and the home builders, traditional winners in a full important environment, their stocks aren't working here at all. Bottom line, compared to the autos and the home builders, tariffs and trade in Turkey, I, geez, sometimes I feel like a little bit of a sideshow. This market can keep climbing without those two crucial groups. But I have to admit, overall, losing housing, geez, losing autos, is c- Gotta make you a little less sanguine. Mitch in Arizona, Mitch. How you doing, Jim? Well, Mitch, I'm Trump puzzling over the US economy. What's going on with you? Every time I get on the freeway to my right is a glass structure with automobiles on it. I didn't know what it was, but I know what it is now. It's Carvana.
1: And the stock is up 200% year-to-date. What do you think?
0: Well, you know what? This is the winner in this group. Now, we did profile a used car guy uh, last week to be like CarMax, but I got to get to the bottom of of how Carvana can be up 186% because it is just insane. Let's do a piece and come back. How about JC in New York? JC? Hey, Jim. I'm 25 years old and first want to thank you for helping all young investors. No problem. My question is about PBF Energy, and oil refinery. The past couple of months, PBF and oil refineries in general have rallied in some part due to what a number of news outlets have reported. There are some new maritime regulations that go into effect in 2020, which require the reduction of sulfur content in marine marine vessels from 3.5% to 2.5%, so that's a lot. I think PBF has the technology to take advantage of the oil refinery landscape right now and going forward in 2020 when IMO goes into effect. But what do you think? JC, I'm with you. Uh, absolutely. I'm, I know those rules because I, I follow the cruise industry. You're absolutely right. And by the way, I was going to say by Endeavor. But you know what? That's A&DV, which is a merger But you got a good one. I like your choice. I like your homework. Doug in Indiana. Doug. Booyah, Jim. Hey, Booyah. my question's in regards to uh, Wyndham Destinations, W-I-N-D. Right. Back, back in June, they split into two uh, different companies, hotels and Wyndham Destinations timeshares. I'm just wanted to know, I own stock of both of them. What should I do? So I buy Look, it. Look, I think Wyndham Destinations is very cheap. I, You know what? People have turned very hard against anything involving uh, – hotel and timeshare. I think that's a mistake. I think Wyndham D, the one that's the W Y N D, is too cheap to ignore. All right. Money is being spent right now, but it's not traditional winners like autos and housing that are working here. And you've got to understand that these are big cap stocks that are just losers right now. The shift is to apparel, to experiences, and to tech equipment. Think Apple. Thanks to those good old millennials. I'm always trying to figure out what they do. That's why I want to declare a two-for-one split of my age to get in their heads. All my money tonight. It's a battle for drugstore dominance, but which company could come out on top? I'm revealing you want to know. Then it's more than just a classic Kyle King album, boy, I remember from freshman year in college. Tapestry could also be a classic stock for your portfolio. i you will sit down with the CEO after earnings, see how it's weaving a profit together. And the general consensus on the street is that Treasury is among the worst asset classes to park funds in. Uh-uh. Charts telling you a different story. Don't make a move. Stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Let me tell you a real yarn here. Last week, Rite Aid slashed its guidance, symbol R-A-D, right? And the numbers were so bad that they put the final nail in the coffin of the company's already due merger with Albertsons. Then a few days later, CVS Health reports a fabulously better than expected quarter. Now, I'm a big fan of CVS Health, especially with the pending acquisition of Edna, which will make this the most integrated player in the industry. In fact, this stock is a horse. And I think you should get on. Bye, bye, bye. But how do we arrive at a place where CVS is on fire while CVS, I'm sorry, well Rite Aid is, is falling apart? Literally, one is so much better than the other. Well, you know what? They're very related. CVS is winning because its competitors, particularly Rite Aid, are in disarray. Long story short, CVS has had two major rivals, Walgreens and Rite-It, and the latter two companies spent years trying to combine forces. In October of 2015, Walgreens Boots, the number one player, announced that it would be acquiring rite the number three player. But understandably, the deal ran into some major antitrust issues. By late 2016, it was crystal clear that the Federal Trade Commission, FTC, had serious reservations about approving the transaction. Can't blame them. The FTC wanted Walgreens and Rite Aid to sell at least 650 stores in order to prevent anti-competitive behavior. However, even that wasn't enough. In a three-to-two merger where an industry is consolidating from three major players to just two of them, the regulators tend to be incredibly skittish. So the FTC didn't just want Walgreens and Rite Aid to sell hundreds of stores. They wanted those stores sold to a viable buyer who could actually operate them without going under, who could be a real competitor. In retrospect, it's kind of crazy that these two companies spent so long trying to work this out. The FTC had been burned, though, by failed divestitures before, so they had to play hardball. When Albertsons bought Safeway in 2015, Well, FTC forced them to sell 146 stores to a much smaller rival, in this case, Hagen Holdings. Within a year, Hagen declared bankruptcy. They borrowed a bunch of money to buy those stores, and they couldn't keep up with the interest payments. Adding insult to injury, the next year, Alberson's actually repurchased about 30 of the stores that the FTC had just forced them to sell because it was anti-competitive. Yep, the regulators must have felt like they participated in a travesty of a mockery of a sham. And that was just the most recent example of the FTC getting burnt. But, but by December of 2016, Walgreens and Rite Aid figured out, well, geez, we got a way around this problem. They came, up with a, they came up with a terrific, terrific solution. They agreed to sell 865 stores to Fred's Pharmacy. That's a regional player mostly focused on the southeast. In fact, Fred's even claimed they're willing to purchase up to 1,200 locations if necessary. But there was just one issue. Fred's really wasn't big enough to acquire 865 Rite-Aids, let alone 1,200. At the time, the company had 628 stores of its own. The transaction would have du- uh, doubled or even tripled the footprint. Sure enough, FTC, so afraid that something bad could happen here, they refused to bite. See, remember, they'd been hosed by Albertsons, which foisted off the stores that failed Hagen. So they weren't going to make the same mistake again. Also, again, a three-to-two merger is always going to be an incredibly tough sell with the government. Yet Walgreens and Rite Aid just kept pushing. By late last June, they finally realized, you know what, full merger off the table. So rather than a complete sale of Rite Aid, Walgreens proposed buying roughly 2,200 stores from its smaller competitor, about half the business, for more than $5 billion in cash. That was a deal the FTC could almost live with. Then last September, they finally gave Walgreens the go-ahead to snap up 1,932 Rite Aids for just under $4.4 billion. In the end, the deal hasn't done Walgreens all that much anyway. They wanted all of Rite Aid in order to totally dominate the drugstore space. Instead, they spent two years fighting the FTC and got a couple thousand stores, not enough to fundamentally change the balance of power in the Industry. As for Rite Aid, though, there are words that can describe what they've done to themselves, but I'm not allowed to say them on basic cable. Rite Aid took Walgreens' money, used most of it to clean up their balance sheet, and tried to get on with their life as a much smaller chain. Unfortunately, though, the company had deteriorated dramatically since they first put themselves up for sale in 2015. You can imagine if your company's for sale, lots of employees leave, the places don't well. uh, they just don't look as good. There's no long-term future. And over the years, Rite Aid's same-store sales got weaker and weaker. And the earnings have shrunk, too. At best, you could say trying to sell the company to Walgreens was a major distraction. So this February, Rite Aid lines up a new deal. They agree to sell themselves to Albertsons, the privately held supermarket chain, for a combination of cash and stock. The idea was that the merger would create a new powerhouse with tons of opportunities for, cost, for cost-cutting and cross-selling. Rite Aid's CEO would get to run the combined company. But this merger hit a snag, too. According to some analysts, this mostly stock-based deal valued Rite Aid at somewhere between $0.75 and $1.75. And that's not so great, given that the stock was trading at $2.20 before the Albertsons deal was announced. So many of Rite Aid's biggest shareholders came out against the merger. I think they're being short-sighted, though. On its own, the business is worth less than they believe. Sorry. Then last week, Rite Aid removed all doubt when it slashed its full-year guidance. Their shareholders wanted more money, but if anything, it was worth even less to Albertsons. So both sides agreed to call off the deal. The response, Rite Aid stock has just been obliterated, and with good reason. Rite Aid's business is a mess, and with Amazon getting into the pharmacy space, eh, already a lousy position. So let's recap. After years of maneuvering, Walgreens gets a bunch of extra stores it doesn't really necessarily need. Rite Aid seems to be running itself in the ground with no interesting interested buyers in sight. That's one reason I'm such a big fan of CVS. It's nice when your competitors sabotage themselves, but there's more to it than that. CVS is the perfect drugstore chain for this moment. Like Walgreens, they have tremendous scale. They've got nearly 10,000 stores, which gives them a lot of bargaining power. Unlike Walgreens, CVS Health is the most vertically integrated player in the industry. They already have their own pharmacy benefit management business, the old mark, I like that deal, which helps health plans save money on prescription drugs. And going forward, CVS will do even better when they finish buying Aetna the huge health maintenance organization, which should happen in the next couple months it's going to be a transformative deal. Aetna insures more than 44 million people. That means the combined company will have enormous clout. CVS will provide insurance and fill your prescriptions. There are huge opportunities for cost savings here, both for the company itself and for its customers. I believe the regulators will let it happen because this is the kind of combination that could help contain the runaway cost of health care. And that's why doctors hate this deal. The American Medical Association has been urging the Justice Department to block it. They know that if CVS and Aetna join forces, they'll be able to strong arm healthcare providers into cutting prices. That's bad for physicians, good for everybody else. So once this deal goes through, CVS will be perfectly poised to compete with the Amazons of the world while also crushing its smaller competitors like the Apple's writing that the FTC should allow them to merge with, with Walgreens. More importantly, CVS is already doing great. When the company reported last week, they blew away the numbers. Terrific top and bottom line beat, including monster 5.9% same-source sales growth. The Stock popped 4% on the news. And you know what? It hasn't looked back since then. It's been rallying day after day. Huge move today. It's back with the retailers. It's not just Amazon roadkill. Bottom line, when the FTC blocked the Walgreens-Rite Aid merger, they actually laid the groundwork for less competition because the delay and subsequent confusion ended up crushing Rite Aid. They thought they were preventing the industry from becoming an effective duopoly. Instead, that's pretty much exactly what they got. And the biggest winner, it's CVS. It's the best-of-breed stock, a lot more room to run. And the reason it's going higher is because it should be. Mark in Florida, Mark. Hi, Jim. This is Mark with a C, not a K. You and the crew are the greatest. Hmm. My question, I own a large cap that pays a 5.4% dividend. With new management now in place at the top and a new direction defined, that is through the $300 million stake in 23andMe, Will the picture transform to a growth play from the thirteen point five? I, I don't know. Twenty three me won't be value. that much of a deal. But but, but Emma Wams I think is the real deal. I really like this call. I've been trying to figure out whether to profile the stock or not. I'm glad you brought it up. Our viewers are incredibly smart. Mark, I think GSK works. Gary in Florida. Gary. Booyah Jim. Love you, man. How you doing? I'm doing well. How about you, partner? Doing great. Doing great. Hey, my question is regarding
1: Molina Healthcare. I've been watching this stock for the last six months or so. Um, it apparently got some uh, recently some good news and uh, salvaged a Medicaid contract in, in uh, Florida. With the stock having the big move it's had in the last 12 months, do you think there's room to grow? I don't know. It's up
0: up almost 75%. Uh, I like Centene more. This is a good stock. You're absolutely right to bring your attention. I like Centene more. And uh, my Chapel Trust, you can follow along by joining the ActionLordsPlus.com Club, United Health, class of the field. Don't forget CVS when it finishes merger with that, and it's going to be fantastic. All right. The FTC ended up shooting itself in the foot by blocking the Walgreens right-aid merger. Right in, got crushed and ended up with less competition not more. Stick with CVS. It's the winner in this space. Much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive with Tapestry TPR after earnings. Company has weaved at 12% move higher today. But can the uptrend continue? I got the CEO. Then you might be on Mars before the SEC hammers Tesla. I'll tell you why. And all your calls. Rapid fire. Tonight's edition of The Nighting Round. So stick with Kramer. Do not ever let anybody tell you it's impossible to reliably pick winners in the stock market. Last Friday, I told you to buy some Tapestry ahead of this quarter this morning. For those of you who don't remember, Tapestry is the apparel and accessories company, formerly known as Coach. They also own Kate Spade and Stuart Weissman. I've repeatedly pointed out the accessories group is red-hot here. So I extrapolated for the rest of the group and predicted Tapestry would have a good quarter. But even I didn't expect the stock to rally $5.70 or 12% like it did today because of unbelievable guidance. What's driving it? Okay. Three cent beat off of a 57 cent basis, higher than expected revenue, but just an incredibly bullish view for the 2019 fiscal year. The truth is, this represents merely the, the latest step in what's been a tremendous multi year turnaround effort. It's been speared by Victor Luis, who's taken over CEO, CEO more than five years ago. I think he's done an amazing job, but do not take it from me. Let's check it with the man himself, Victor Luis. He's the bankable CEO of Tapestry to get a better sense of where his company's headed. Mr. Luis, welcome to May of Money. So great that you're on the show. Thank, Thank you so much. Well, you know, I just was pulling for you because I think that you've done an incredible thing revitalizing this brand. But I was astounded. You're predicting a year of double-digit revenue growth. You've got unbelievable growth in China. You've got a multi-year plan. I want you to trace it out for
1: our viewers. Sure. Well, we're very excited. First, of course, we've had an incredible year. Just announced a great end to that year with our fourth quarter. Uh, which was really reflected in the acquisition of Kate Spade that we've successfully integrated uh, following up on the acquisition of Stuart Weitzman. And now we're building a platform upon which all three of our brands, Coach, Kate Spade and Stuart Weitzman, can grow, uh, which is going to be backed by some investment strategies that you discussed uh, specifically in China. Uh, when the Coach brand entered China about 10 years ago, it was a $50 million business, today north of $600 million. Uh, had an awareness today, an unaided awareness that basically is at 30% relative to Kate Spade's at two. So, tremendous opportunity for us across the Asian uh, markets for growth. But
0: we would be uh, sliding another initiative that you've done: $800 million in men's going to a billion? How very, does that
1: happen? Very excited. Men have discovered bags, and of that, about half is in North America, and of course in Asia, with the other half, as, uh, with a business that's also growing from a much smaller base in Europe. But we're very excited about our men's program. We've been putting a lot of talent behind that, a lot of investment behind that, and over our planning horizon, we see a very clear path to a billion dollars.
0: You also have done a remarkable different pivot in marketing. You are using digital to a tremendous extent. You're getting millennials that way, aren't you?
1: We are. Uh, Look, uh, of our direct business today, approximately 10% of total tapestry business of around $6 billion or so this fiscal year is direct digital. If we were to include all of our partners at wholesale, it would be, of course, uh, substantially more than that. But it is the most important way in which we connect with consumers and influence their purchase decisions. And we've been making tremendous investments in our marketing direct-to-consumer through digital, whether that be through social media, of course, through our own direct comm or through third-party channels
0: now let's talk about China first I was concerned I was worried about tariffs because the handbags were on the list but it, it seems like one I shouldn't be fretting that much
1: but two the presence is building and building in China yeah for us China is really much less of a sourcing uh, uh, avenue than it is a market for us uh, as I mentioned the coach brand alone in Greater China is north of 600 million dollars terrific opportunity for both Kate and for Stuart Weitzman there as we look to the future from a sourcing perspective today uh, uh, we're very GLOBAL. And how we source in right. China represents between 3 and 4%, really, of our handbags and accessories only. Uh, so really not much of a direct, immediate risk for us.
0: Okay, two concerns. I just want to be sure. One is uh, Stuart Weitzman did not have the numbers that I was hoping for. I know it's a story brand. And two, it was mentioned on the call. You know, it's very sad. I know she was not connected with the brand. Yet, but Kate Spade did pass away in June. And I know that got, brought a brand awareness. Uh, I think it's a great brand. But I want to be sure that that spike wasn't ephemeral and I want to be sure that Stuart Weitzman is on a growth path that I shouldn't worry about.
1: Sure, in terms of uh, Stuart Weitzman, what we've communicated uh, most recently is that uh, we're working very hard to deal with some of the execution issues that we were facing and hard to deal with some of the execution issues that we were facing in our supply chain as we integrated that brand Mm -hmm. uh, following the uh, elevation of the founder to a chairman emeritus role. And uh, uh, we see that now uh, uh, most of those issues are behind us and we have in fact on this most recent call just this morning Thank <laughs> you announced that uh, by the second quarter of this year, we will again see growth in the Stuart Weitzman brand. And in the case of uh, Kate Spade, as you mentioned, uh, uh, of course, uh, very, very sad with the passing of the founder. She has not been with the brand for the last decade. Um, um, But of course, we were very touched with the response that we got in social media across the world uh, uh, to her passing and uh, very excited. And a couple of these silhouettes, in fact, that we have here today are from our new executive creative director, Nicola Glass, who the places the uh, person who followed okay. uh, uh, Kate herself and uh, uh, we're very excited to launch her collections in the spring.
0: We went by one of your stores. My wife said to me, I don't think that's coach because of this. We saw this. You have changed it up in a way that even though you never uh, we still love the traditional right? We love the retro juice. My earth. daughter wears the retro But you have made the stores look very uncoached-like. Not that that's bad, but we wanted more, and you're giving it to
1: us. Thank you. Well, at the core, they're still very coached. They still right. have okay. that core DNA that we brought forward, and, and listening to your wife as the voice of the consumer is what we enjoy yeah. listening to the, the most, of course. Um, but what we have here, and the one you're referring to, is uh, one of our newest uh, uh, handbags by uh, Stuart Beavers, our executive creative right. director. And he's gone back to the archives a little bit and taken the traditional Coach uh, signature actually modernized it, put it in a new silhouette, and we're getting an incredible reaction to the launch of this signature. Oh, platform. people love it! Now, I, is there something that I'm missing? Why are accessories itself as, a, as
0: something people buy? What, how did accessories get red hot?
1: Well, look, they've been red hot for quite some time, okay, actually. Fair, enough, fair um, enough. I think if you were to compare uh, uh, the growth of the accessories category over the last decade to, uh, uh, I would say, premium apparel. Uh, And other categories of of accessories has definitely outpaced. Uh, The past year has seen really uh, terrific growth with uh, high single-digit, low double-digit growth globally, uh, truly driven by the fact that accessories remain the most important category that consumers use to express their individuality. It's branded. It's one of the key ways that they invest in fashion to express themselves.
0: Okay, one last question. You've got two Chinese celebrities, candidly I did not know them. That is my own weakness. And Selena. Gomez here,
1: Correct. endorsements, they work. They work. They're a great way for us to connect with consumers globally. Of course, as we know, as, especially as consumers leverage social media and celebrity much more in order to give the brand's context, uh, we'll leverage global celebrities such as Selena Gomez, and then we'll also complement that with local celebrities in key markets, whether that be in Japan or in China with the two that you've mentioned that we discussed on the call this morning.
0: Well, what a remarkable turn. It's going to be long lasting to last many years. That's Victor Lisi, CEO of Tapestry. The symbol is TPR. This one's real. Remember when we first had, P- had, had Manny Trico and PBH? This one feels like infancy. Matt Money's back after the break. We need to address one of the major hidden assumptions that's underpinning this market. The idea that bonds are kind of garbage, at least in this environment. The conventional wisdom on both Wall Street and Main Street is that U.S. Treasuries are one of the worst possible asset classes doing right now. And look, I get it. This is economics 101. When interest rates rise, bond prices go lower. That's how it works. So when you've got the Federal Reserve on track to keep raising short-term rates, when long-term rates remain at historically low levels, the presumption is the Treasury yields have nowhere to go but up. And that means Treasury prices are headed lower. But is it possible that the bond bears have gotten too complacent? Tonight, we're going off the charts with the help of Carly Garner. She's a brilliant technician. She's the co-founder of DeCarly Trading and the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading. She writes with me at at realmoney.com. We're going to reassess the state of the bond market. Before we get started, let me make one thing very clear. Bonds do matter. The bond market is larger than the stock market, much larger. When it comes to managing your money, bonds are the competition to stocks. Also, the action in Treasuries can be a very powerful signal about the direction of the broader economy. I always like to tell you that stuff. It's never too late to learn this if you don't know it. So what does Garner think here? Simple. She's betting that the bears in the Treasury complex have gotten overconfident. And the conventional wisdom here may be no wisdom at all. Why don't we start with a weekly chart of the 10-year U.S. Treasury futures, which contains one of Garner's favorite tools, and that's the Commodity Futures Trading Commission's Commitment of Traders Report, also known as the COT. Report. This is the report where they show you the net long or net short position of three groups of, of traders, the large speculators, meaning professional money managers, small speculators, meaning home gamers, and commercial hedgers, meaning people who need to buy or sell the futures for business reasons. What do we see here? What we see serious. holy cow, the large speculators have gotten what I regard as being insanely negative. Look at that short position. Not only are they holding net short positions in these 10 year treasuries futures, but they're more bearish than they've ever been at any other time in living memory. Large speculators are holding a net short position of roughly $600 futures contracts. Small speculators, the home gamers, have another 200000 that they're short. All told, that's a massive bet against treasury prices, the likes of which we've never seen before. They're all betting that rates are going to rise. And that's the problem. Sure, a very basic understanding of economics tells us that bond prices need to go down. But let's complicate that with a basic understanding of markets. First, when nearly every investor has the same expectation, when most of them have already taken action on that belief, then it's baked in. Garner's pointing out a very important idea here. If an investment is universally loathed, that often means it's done going down because everyone who was going to sell has already sold. In short, ha, she's wondering. Who the heck is left to sell U.S. Treasuries here? Second, when you have a massive net short position in anything, it sets you up for a rebound at some point in the future. Hey, think Tesla, right? Because sooner or later, those short sellers are going to want to ring the register. And for a short seller to take profits, they need to buy back the thing they bet against. Basically, Garner thinks this trade has gotten overcrowded. That's a key term when you come to, when you talk about short selling. Overcrowded. And when the shorts start unwinding their positions, well, therefore, it's going to create a fierce rally. Next, take a look at this chart, which shows the seasonal patterns that we're dealing with, the seasonal patterns of the tenure. This is a very important concept of how it's done in the past. Historically speaking, treasuries tend to rally in the late summer and early fall. In Garner's experience, this is one of the most reliable seasonal patterns around and tends to be pretty unforgiving. She knows from experience because because she once blew up her parents' speculative trading account trying to fight this. Well, that would certainly be a mistake. Okay. Now, during the second half of the year, the 10-year note futures typically move higher, with the biggest move usually coming from July through early October. Got it? Karner thinks the rally could be particularly pronounced this year, given the Treasury prices are pretty depressed here. Next, let's put this in context. This is a chart showing the yield on 10-year U.S. Treasuries going back to 1954. Lately, we've been hearing a lot of people argue that Treasury yields have broken out to the upside, surging to very high levels. But that paints an incomplete picture. Sure, there's been a breakout, but historically speaking, rates are still pretty low. And more importantly, that doesn't mean they're, they're going to keep heading higher in a straight line. Fact is, they've been going sideways for months. More importantly, you need to compare U.S. Treasury yields to their main competition, which is low-risk securities issued by other governments. Right now, the 10-year Treasury supports a 2.89% yield in comparison to German 10-year, big, right? Sits at just 0.32%. The Japanese tenure is yielding close to zero. Italian tenure, you know, their government's in disarray, is pretty close to the U.S. I mean, that's crazy. It's insane. It was a country with very real risk of defaulting on its debt one day, whereas U.S. treasuries are practically the safest investments. Well, that's why we call them risk-free, right? Because they're so darn safe. In short, our bonds give foreign investors much more bang for their buck, and that's been leading to a flight to quality. And the collapse of the Turkish Lira is only going to accelerate this process. When you add all of this stuff together, would it be really so crazy for the yield on the tenure to work its way back towards, say, Two percent, where we were just last summer. Finally, why don't we look at the weekly chart of the 10-year Treasury futures? Garner points out that while Treasury prices have dipped multiple times this year, each of those moves has ultimately been rejected. In fact, when she looks at the action in the 10-year here, she sees signs of a double bottom. Hey, that's classic formation where buyers step in, preventing prices from sinking below a previously established floor of support. She also notes that double bottoms tend to be followed by significant rallies. So... Go right up here. At the same time, Garner thinks we're seeing a wedge pattern. See that wedge pattern like that? Uh, she thinks it's merging right here, and she believes that will be resolved to the upside. The Relative Strength Index and the Williams Percentage R Index. We often talk about those two important gauges of momentum. Have both turned higher here, and they both got room to run. Another positive sign. If the 10-year Treasury futures can breach their next ceiling resistance, 122. Uh, one five, 122.15, Garner believes that they could start making their way toward 128. Eight, which would represent a major decline in long-term interest rates. Putting it all together, look. Sometimes markets aren't what they seem. When everyone's betting on one thing, there's a good chance that that thing won't actually happen, and that's what Garner sees in the market for U.S. Treasuries—an over-crowded trade on the short side that probably won't play out the way the bears are anticipating. The bottom line: Look, I understand why the conventional wisdom is so negative on bond prices, but the charts, as interpreted by Carly Garner, suggest that U.S. Treasury prices could actually have some upside here, and it could be a violent move higher. In price and lower yield because of that massive short position. That money's back after the break. It is time! It's time for the light round. goes up? rap girls, one another. Same as Sarah, bye-bye. by And then light rounds over. Are you ready, sking daddy? Time for the light round. We're going to start with Claudia in Missouri, Claudia. Hi, Jim. This is Claudia from St. Louis, and you talked to my husband, Virgil, and I while you were at Denny and Scott's son's wedding in Sonoma, Ryan and Julia. Sure. And man, how you doing? Yeah. Oh, you made my day, and you said that this is why I do this show for people like Virgil and Claudia. You Absolutely. are my financial I you. Yeah. Idol. I that's exciting. That's exciting. How yeah. can I help? Um, I have uh, a lot of success with Amazon, but a stock that really concerns me is Scott's Miracle Grow. Well, I you're right to be concerned, it. Claudia. You're right to be concerned because, frankly, they've missed quarter, missed quarter, missed quarter, and enough is enough is enough. I don't know if I want to sell it here. Maybe you get a bounce, but, geez, you're absolutely right to be mystified. Hey, and I wish uh, Julian Ryan best of all, and they're going to be at a Eagles game against the Skins. Let's go to Charles in Maryland. Charles. Hi, Mr. Craver. Thanks for your great show and for reminding us of the basics.
1: Okay. Uh That's um, what I gotta do. My stock is uh, J&J, and I'm wondering why Under the fee is so three. hard. Under
0: 1, 3! You got there! of course, you're doing a magnificent job. You finally got a break to be able to buy that. I buy some here. by down 127. Let's go to Bobby in Missouri. Bobby!
1: Jim, booyah. booyah. I've been Aston Technology
0: for four years, and I'm up over 170%. What is that? That is like I've a never software heard you company, a company for company before. It's like an infrastructure software company. It's unbelievable. we got to profile that thing. It is up huge. I mean, look, I'm a Salesforce VMware kind of guy, the Cloud Kings, but that is that is sui generous. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Autodesk. I like it. Let's go to uh, Charles in Indiana. Charles. Hi, this is Charles in Indiana. All right. And let me say to you, and let me say to you, a uh, booyah. Wow, that was just a massive booyah. I'm so thrilled about it. What's going on? I have been a fan
1: since your mad money inception.
0: Holy I cow, when que- I was young. <laughs> yeah, me too. I have two questions. The first is a 3D, 3D printing company, Stratus' Limited. Buy, sell, or hold? What? Not that good of a quarter. Okay, uh, you know, we just had... And I went over the call. We had a really good call from 3D Systems. Uh, The stock is up in a straight line, but it's really good. And let's not forget what they've been building at HP Inc. They've got terrific 3D. Those are my two favorites. I don't need to go anywhere down the, uh, anywhere further. I need to go to Lee in Texas. Lee! Booyah, dear! Booyah! That's March. I struck oil when I started trading in Laredo Petroleum. No, we're going to lay I'll low profit. on the oil. We're going to lay low on oil right now. It's a little too risky, by the way. Fang Diamondback Energy buys energy, and that's an interesting idea to buy Diamondback on the weakness. But we're going to do more work. Let's go to Ralph in New York. Ralph. Yes, yeah, so How you doing, Jim? I am uh, good. How uh, about you? Was just look- Good, 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 good. I was just wondering what you thought about JetBlue right no, now. No, I'm not with a JetBlue fan. I like Southwest Air Symbol Love. And by the way, Oscar Munoz, Oscar's doing a good job at, uh, at United Continental. You see that thing? It's like fifty three week high. Incredible. Really bifurcated segment today. Let's go to Bill in New York. Bill. Hi, uh, Jim. Uh, I'm calling about sorrow. It's That's a, a high-risk uh, stock. It's down a great deal. You, you, as long as you understand that it's totally speculative, I do not have any reason why it can go up, but it is speculative, and I know people want to do that. Doug in Virginia. Doug. Kramer. Booyah. Booyah. Hey, I'm calling. I'm in, in Virginia. and calling about a Virginia company, Lumber Liquidators. Yeah, if I don't know If you're listening to that Home Depot call, I don't want anything to do with anything related to housing, including lumber. By the way, lumber's come down in price. And that, ladies and gentlemen, of the Lightning
1: Round.
0: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Sooner or later, the short sellers who keep betting against Tesla are going to realize that they're like wily e. Coyote chasing after the Roadrunner. From the moment Elon Musk tweeted that he had the funding to take Tesla private, the bears, who despise this guy, have been acting like this is it. They finally have him. Surely this time there's no way for the Roadrunner to escape. Somehow they believe the feds will look at this tweet and say, we've had enough of this nonsense. Musk is out. But that's not how the world works. Today, Musk tells us that he's brought in Silver Lake and Goldman Sachs as financial advisors, hired some top-notch lawyers, too. Now, maybe this is all smoke and mirrors, but you know what? That doesn't matter. It's virtually impossible to check out. And it's not like we can expect explicit denials. In short, even if Elon Musk was lying through his teeth, I think he gets away with it. And that's driving those darn bears crazy. Same goes for the special committee of board members just appointed to review the bid. Like, uh, like them or not, Brad Boss, who worked at Solar City, which Musk co-founded, Rob Robin Dinholm, uh, chief operating officer of Telstra, a telco company, and Linda Johnson Rice, chairman and CEO of Johnson Publishing. They're all respectable business people. Are they independent? I think they qualify. Short sellers can't stand that. Then there are the extreme skeptics, the ones who say this latest tweet about bringing lawyers and investment bankers is just Elon Musk covering his butt at your last week's reckless tweet about having secured financing for a buyout. They want to know when he brought these firms on. Was it before or after he publicly molded taking Tesla private? To which I say, whoa, hold your horses. Look, I consider myself an Elon Musk skeptic, too. But you need to understand how the law actually works. First, sure, the SEC may be looking into Musk's tweets. The, the thing is, the SEC looks into everything. We don't know if it's a formal investigation or informal inquiry, but I've already heard commentators say that it'll be criminally prosecuted by the Justice Department. That's insane. We haven't even seen any charges from the SEC, let alone a referral to justice. Second, remember, Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund just bought two billion million worth of Tesla stock in the open market. If the company were really running out of money, as the bears constantly insist, wouldn't Tesla have sold those shares directly via private placement? And, hey... Who knows what the Saudis told Musk about a possible takeover bid or going private. They can certainly afford a buyout if they want to. Does that count as secured funding? Maybe to Musk it does. Maybe the SEC agrees. Maybe it doesn't agree. We have no idea. We know the Saudis want to diversify away from oil. Taking Tesla private would help them do just that. Look, I don't like the way Musk has disseminated this information either. It sure seems like he was deliberately trying to stymie the short sellers, and it's now snowballed into some sort of weird alternate reality. But if the bears think any of this is going to bring down Elon Musk, they need to wake up. The government doesn't just take down CEOs. Hey, remember Theranos, that bogus diagnostics company? Elizabeth Holmes stayed on as CEO there for five tortured years before justice finally decided to prosecute her for fraud. years. The wheels of justice, they grind slowly. So while you may think Elon Musk is a total liar, just a modern day P.T. Barnum, if not David Blaine, the fact is there's no standard about what you can and can't tweet. Only Musk and the Saudis know what was actually said. If it turns out he's telling the truth, anyone betting against this stock is going to be annihilated. Why would you do that to yourself? If you don't like Tesla, yes, you'd sell it. But don't short it. Shorting Tesla has been a recipe for disaster. Stop betting that wily e. Coyote will catch the roadrunner. It doesn't happen. Stick with Craig. <music> Nvidia reports on Thursday. Get this. Tonight, Wells Fargo goes from sell to buy. That's a double upgrade right on the eve of NVIDIA reporting and a new chip they came out with. I don't know. I mean, this stock could be breaking out. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise i would find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim
1: Kramer, and I will see you tomorrow.